We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the privilege of opening your word again, and I pray that we would not take this privilege for granted, but that we would come before your word with eager ears, ready to listen and to hear what you would have us to, to know about you and to learn. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see more of you today as we open your word. I pray that we would learn something about you today that will change the way that we live and change the way that we think. I just pray that you would help us today to know how to apply this to our lives, that we might bring more honor to your name. I pray that in your word we would see more of you so that we would be truly satisfied in you. And that as we are more satisfied in you, that you would be highly glorified, seen by others to be infinitely valuable as they observe the way that we live and worship you. Just pray that our lives would be changed as a result of studying your word today. We pray this in Christ's name with great hope that you will accomplish in us that which you desire and have purposed for us in this time. Amen. We began looking at this text last week, and I kind of framed it in the motif of resolution, of reevaluation at the coming of a new year. And here we are already a week into this new year, and... I'm going to continue uh, this, this thought, this idea of, of reevaluation of where we are, of what we are doing. Last week, the verses that we looked at from this text, we focused primarily on the health of a, a, an entire church body. What does what a healthy church body look like? And again, this, this idea of health is something that com- first comes to mind as we think of uh, perhaps resolutions made at the beginning of a new year, but also this is a motif that is used in Scripture to describe uh, not only individual Christians, but the, the body of Christ in general. The body of God, God delights when His body, the body of Christ, is healthy. When it is accomplishing the purpose for which He purchased that body. And now we continue this study, and, and the focus shifts kind of from the, the view of, of the body at large to now a view more toward individual Christians. What do individual Christians look like when they are healthy? Remember last time we said that a healthy church doesn't just happen. It's not just that all of a sudden here's a church and it's just it's healthy out of nowhere without any connection to the lives of individual believers. In order for a an entire church to be healthy, individual members within that church body must themselves exhibit a level and degree of health. So I want us to continue to see what healthy Christians look like. If we are to evaluate 
where we stand in our spiritual walk. There are, there are plenty of other measures given in Scripture. This is not by any means an exhaustive look at what it means to be a healthy Christian. But I want to look at this text because I think it, it gives us some indication of what healthy Christians look like, what their attitudes are, what they do. And therefore, we can, we can reevaluate our own uh, spiritual walk and where we fall short, we look to God to grow us and to change us and to, to help us along that journey of more uh, advanced health in our spiritual walk. So as I say, the previous section focused on kind of the, the interpersonal relationships within a body. Now I want us to look at these exhortations as the passage continues and see how they directly impact and apply to us individually. So look again, if you would, beginning in verse 16. And these are probably to most of us well-known verses just because they're very short and easy to memorize. When you're a kid, these are the kind of verses that you pick when you want to see if you can memorize a bunch of verses. You pick ones like these so they add up quickly and they're very easy without, you know, they don't take a lot of time to, to learn and memorize. But I think on the other hand, while that is humorous, these verses are good verses to, to memorize and to know and to apply and seek to live out. Look at verses 16 through 18 again. We have these exhortations. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, before we get into looking at this specifically, there's two things that tie these three specific exhortations together in this, uh, in this passage. First, as Paul writes here, these are the will of God for these people. These are, these are God's will for us. God wants us, God has designed that we exhibit these characteristics of rejoicing, of prayer, of thankfulness. These are what God has made us for. He has created us for these purposes, among others. And all of these things that God has made us for are tied up in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, we don't accomplish these apart from Jesus Christ. He is the, the end to which, we are, to which we are going, and along that road we will exhibit these characteristics as we seek Jesus Christ, as we journey toward Him in, in, in our journey toward Christ-likeness. He is the means of our accomplishing all that is laid out here. This is God's will for us in Christ Jesus. God has made us for this. And as we'll look at a bit later, God is committed to the accomplishment of these in our lives. Second, these three responses by us should be the continual practice of our lives. Look at those common words used in each of these exhortations. We have always. We have without ceasing. We have in all circumstances. These three things are, are three things that should characterize our lives. These are things that should be present on a consistent and continual basis. Each of these things at their, at their heart, at their core, are acts of worship to God. These have something either to do with our response to God or our response to having received something from God. These describe our continual worship to God. And this is the first characteristic I want us to look at of healthy Christians. If you're taking notes, this is the first characteristic we want to look at. Continual worship to God. This will mark healthy Christians. Healthy Christians are people who continually, day by day and all through the day, are worshiping God. First way that we worship God is by rejoicing. Rejoice always. Rejoice at all times. The themes of joy and rejoicing permeate the New Testament. So it behooves us to understand why these, two th these themes of joy and rejoicing are so important. Why are they so vital to us as Christians? Why are, they, why are they themes that appear over and over again 
you read through the writings of, of the New Testament writers and the epistles, these, these topics come up all the time. Be joyful. Be rejoicing. We need to know why they're important. We also need to know why. One of the first questions that come to my mind, we need to understand how it is that we are supposed to be joyful, how it is that we can be joyful all the time when the circumstances of our life seem to dictate a different response. How are we expected to be joyful? How are we expected to rejoice always when our circumstances aren't always worth rejoicing in? I think this is an important thing that we'll look at. And I want to begin our our look at this idea of rejoicing by considering what other places, what other passages in the New Testament have to say about rejoicing. And as if you were to study through this, I just looked up a few, um, just doing a quick search just to see uh, what the various New Testament writers said about joy and rejoicing. And it's actually pretty striking when you when you look up each of these verses how often other words appear in the same context as joy or to rejoice. Words such as mourning, M-O-U-R, mourning, sadness, grief, suffering, and on and on. Words like that are often mentioned in the context of joy and rejoicing. How is that? Let me give you a few examples. If you want to write these down to look up later, Romans 5, verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Colossians 1, 24, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. 1 Peter 1, 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. 1 Peter 4, 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice when his glory is revealed. How are the New Testament writers able to rejoice themselves and encourage others to rejoice in the midst of grief? And to turn this to be very specific for us, if we are pursuing a, a healthy Christian life, a healthy church body and body life, How can we help our brothers and sisters who are grieving, who are suffering, who are undergoing trials and difficulties? How can we help them to rejoice? This is an important question for us to consider because at some point all of us will face these kind of circumstances. All of us will at some point go through a period of time where we aren't feeling like rejoicing. So what do we say to somebody who is in the middle of a difficult circumstances? And we say, look, brother, rejoice all the time. And they respond to, I don't feel like rejoicing. I don't have anything to rejoice about. What do we say to that? Well, first, I believe we must understand that at its root, rejoicing in God is the result of finding our satisfaction in Him. The first step in in rejoicing is to recognizing who it is that we're rejoicing in. (coughs) Excuse me. This verse, these exhortations do not tell us to rejoice in everything, to rejoice that we have difficulty, to rejoice that we're going through problems, to rejoice that we're grieving. But instead, the exhortation is to rejoice at all times, regardless of the circumstances. And while we may not always be able to thank God and rejoice in the middle of a, of a trial, in the midst of difficulty. Sometimes we can do that on the back end. Sometimes we can do that once we're through it, and we can rejoice that God brought us through it, having experienced His faithfulness. 
But we can't always do that in the middle of that difficulty. So I want us to make a second observation about the way Scriptures deal with joy and rejoicing. The first one was the fact that we saw that difficulty often attended the exhortations to rejoicing. The second observation is that the object of our joy and rejoicing is God Himself. Let me give you a few more verses you can jot down. Maybe look up later. Psalm 32, verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Psalm 35, verse 9. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in His salvation. <coughs> Romans 5.11. This is in the same context of one of the verses we read earlier about rejoicing in suffering. A little bit later in that chapter, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And then maybe the most familiar verse to us on rejoicing, Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. So since God is the source of our joy, since God is the, the source of our rejoicing, And since he does not change, he is faithful. We are able always to experience our joy in him. Even when our circumstances might suggest otherwise. Again, this is is an easy thing to say in theory. It's an easy thing to say when you're not in the midst of difficulty. (coughs) But hopefully... As we get to know God through His Word, as we are given opportunities to speak with our fellow brothers and sisters, to speak truth, to speak the Word of God to them, we are able to be used to help them to see more of God. You see, they're never, gonna, they're never going to be able to ignore their difficulty. In that, in that period of time, that that difficulty is not going to be able just to be kind of set aside. and Okay, let's look at God for a while. But hopefully the more we can point them to God, and even as you yourself may be going through difficulty, the more that you can see of God, maybe, maybe, the, the, the smaller your trial will, will seem. It'll never go away until God removes it. But even in the midst of, of difficulty, when you, when you are tempted to throw up your hands and say, I cannot rejoice, I cannot be joyful, let me remind you, let, let us remind each other that our joy is not rooted in our experience. Our joy is rooted in our God, our Creator, our Savior. And so we can, we can rejoice, as impossible as it might seem at times. We can rejoice. It is the will of God that we rejoice at all times, even in the midst of of difficulty. The second exhortation that evidences a continual worship to God is, verse 17, pray without ceasing. Pray constantly. In order to properly implement implement this exhortation, we have to understand what Paul means by prayer here. One commentator, I think, said it very helpfully. He wrote, It is not in the moving of the lips, but in the elevation of the heart to God that the essence of prayer consists. It is not in the moving of the lips, but in the elevation of the of the heart to God, that the essence of prayer consists. (laughs) In other words, we cannot literally be praying all the time. We do have other things to do, right? But we should have a heart of prayer, a heart of communion with God, that is able to go to God at any moment. We can drop what we're doing and go to the Lord. We can be 
in, a, in, in the mode of communion with God, even while we're going about our lives. This attitude of prayer is, is something I believe that sets our relationship with God apart from other religious systems. You see, if we think off the top of our heads of other religious systems who have prescribed times of prayer, they have prescribed places of prayer. Some may even have prescribed prayers that must be prayed. What sets us apart is we have a relationship with somebody that we can, we can go to at any time, anywhere, with anything. We can take anything to the throne of grace, to our Father, who is glad to hear us, who is glad to commune with us, who is glad to know that we are depending upon Him in prayer. Prayers of Christians are also different in that they are not an attempt, hopefully, are not an attempt to manipulate a deity into serving us. Unfortunately, I think we sometimes do, in our fallen nature, maybe come close to this. We, the only times we pray are when we have something we need. When we need God to do something for us, then we'll pray. The exhortation here would seem to suggest that we pray even when we don't have an apparent need, even when we don't have something to take before the Lord as a burden. If we're to be praying constantly, there are certainly going to be times where our prayer is simply fellowship and communion with God, just as felt we would have fellowship and communion with the person sitting next to us. This, I believe, is why the prayer life of the Scripture writers, we can read what they write, and all of a sudden, in the middle of what they're writing, they'll just burst out in prayer, thanking God for what He has done in the lives of those whom they're working with, in their own lives. This ought to characterize our life. We ought to be people who pray constantly. Do you know God? I mean, do you really know God? Do you know God the way that you know your spouse? Do you know God the way that you know your parents? Do you know God the way that you know your friends? You see, what is the basis of our knowledge of those other relationships? It's the time that we spend together. It's the things we talk about. It's the burdens that we share with one another. Do we know God on the basis of our fellowship with Him, our speaking with Him, our talking with Him, our sharing our burdens with Him? Do we know God? This attitude of constant prayer is a result of our knowing God. This is something that I believe is only achieved or primarily achieved by seeing more and more of him through his word. It's interesting that oftentimes, you think even of, of children's songs, and even as, as we think about prayer, what is it always connected to? Reading the Bible, right? Reading the Bible and prayer. Two disciplines that seem to always get mentioned together, but I, I don't think that's an accident. I think the two go together. I think in order to have a, a vibrant prayer life, we have to know the one to whom we are praying, and the way that we know him is through his word. And so I think that for us, if, if, if we don't have a, a consistent time of reading God's word, we have little hope of having a, a regular prayer life. We don't know the one to whom we're talking. And I think the, the opposite is true as well. Maybe that kind of makes it difficult if we can't do one without doing the other, and then they, they both depend on each other. But I think this is something that if we are pursuing God in these ways, that both will flourish. Both disciplines will flourish. And will grow more and more. As we know more of God, we will more and more depend on Him and go to Him in prayer. 
the third exhortation, the third characteristic of, of a healthy Christian that reflects or exhibits our lives of continual worship is the fact that we will give thanks in everything. And I believe this is closely related with that first one of rejoicing at all times. You see, the exhortation here is not to give thanks for everything, because there are certainly some things that we we would not want to give thanks for. We have to, we receive things, we have things happen to us that we are not initially thankful for. But that's not the exhortation. The exhortation is for us to give thanks in all circumstances. You see, the attitude of thankfulness, just as the attitude of rejoicing, is not directly tied to our experience. It's not directly tied to the things that we receive. But we should be a people that are characterized by thankful hearts. We've just recently come through a season of thanksgiving. One of the things that we talked about in our community group during that time was we considered the question of how, how, <coughs> excuse me, how easy it is for us to only be thankful, at least verbally, during that, on that day or during that season. And all the rest of the year, we, we tend to forget to be thankful. How easy it is for us to be people who aren't thankful. But again, I believe that the more and more we see of God, the more and more we understand what He has done for us, the more thankful we will be. We will be able, with His helping us, to be thankful even in the midst of circumstances that aren't to our advantage, at least from our perspective. You see, these are the will of God for us. God desires that each of us rejoice at all times. God desires that each of us pray constantly. And God desires that each of us give thanks in everything. And we'll see in just a minute, as we move later on in the text, that God is committed to accomplishing this in us. So before you say that we're just kind of left to ourselves to to do this, hold on for a second. We'll get to we'll get to see that God will accomplish this for us. So healthy Christians are people that are characterized by lives of continual worship to God. The second thing, if you're taking notes. The second characteristic, if I were to summarize the rest of these verses in this text in two words that describe healthy Christians, it would be these, these two words, discernment and obedience. <clears throat> discernment and obedience. Let's read verses 19 through 22 again. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. In these verses, we have five commands given to us regarding our approach, essentially, to God's revelation to us. The first one I want us to look at is verse 19. Do not quench the Spirit. The imagery of putting out a fire is certainly appropriate because the Spirit is often described as a fire or doing the work of a flame or a fire. So we are commanded not to put out that fire, not to diminish that powerful work by the Spirit that brings light and heat to those that He comes in contact with. But the question that we have to ask is, what does it mean to quench the Spirit? In what ways are we in danger of quenching the Spirit? In what ways are we in danger of putting out this fire? 
Now, on one hand, it is not possible for us to quench the Spirit, right? The Spirit is more powerful than our ability to, to quench Him. And since the imagery of the fire is metaphorical, then the act of quenching the fire is also metaphorical. And I believe we quench the Spirit any time that we consciously or not restrict His working in our lives and in the lives of those around us. We quench the Spirit any time we restrict the Spirit's working. In what ways does the Spirit work in our lives? You can certainly think of some. The Spirit works in revealing God to us, right? As we open God's Word right now, I trust that the Spirit is opening our eyes to see what is revealed here. The Spirit works to convict us of our sin. My prayer is also that as we study God's Word, the Spirit is even right now pointing out to us the areas that we fail, the areas that we fall short of God's will for us. The Spirit gives us the ability to accomplish all that God has for us. The Spirit gives us the ability to accomplish all that's written in this text. The Spirit is the one that is actively working to do all of these things for us and in us. So in what ways do we quench the Spirit, even just in those specific ways and areas? We can quench the Spirit by ignoring the Spirit. When He convicts us of sin and we ignore it. I believe that's one way that we quench the Spirit. And sadly, if we continue to ignore and ignore and to ignore, that voice of the Spirit in our hearts tends to get quieter and quieter because of our resistance, the hardness of our heart. I think we can also quench the Spirit restrict his, his usefulness in our life by failing to acknowledge Him, failing to acknowledge the working of the Spirit in our lives. How do we do this? When God does something in us, when God does something in our body, and we fail to recognize the work of the Spirit, we are not able to give God the glory due to Him for accomplishing that work. When we view our spiritual growth as, as our work, as our effort, as our diligence and our commitment, instead of the working of the Spirit in us, we are quenching the Spirit in that we are not allowing Him to receive the glory that He is due for accomplishing so great a work in our hearts. When we fail to speak of the Spirit, when we can come to church on a regular basis and never talk about the Spirit, we are quenching Him. We are quenching him. Not that He's not going to accomplish and not that He's not going to work, because He does. But again, when we, when we just ignore Him and never talk about Him, even though He's doing His work every day in our lives, he, we fail to give Him the glory that is due to Him for what He accomplishes. So to not quench the Spirit, the, the way that we best can avoid not quenching the Spirit is to continually live in dependence on the Spirit for our sanctification, for our knowledge and understanding of Scripture, if we live lives actively dependent upon the Spirit, we will, Lord willing, not quench the Spirit. It's hard to quench the Spirit when we are looking to Him to work in us, when we are asking Him to work in us, when we are submitting ourselves to His working in us. 
We're not going to be quenching the Spirit. Now, I think this exhortation to not quench the Spirit also governs what has come before in this text and what comes after. So we could take any of these exhortations, and when we are applying these in our lives, those are evidences that we are not quenching the Spirit. When we are rejoicing at all times, that is certainly a work of the Spirit in us, right? When we are praying constantly, we're praying in the power of the Spirit. We're praying to the Spirit if we're praying to God. We are giving thanks in everything. We are acknowledging the Spirit's work. May we acknowledge that work publicly. May we acknowledge that work to ourselves so as not to ignore the working of the Holy Spirit. I believe it also governs what comes after in these following exhortations. Because the Spirit works in each of these also for us. The second exhortation, do not despise prophecies. <clears throat> I believe the word prophecies here is best understood to refer generally to any exhort or any utterance given by one who proclaims God's word. Not limited simply to what we might think of as the gift of prophecy in Scripture, where it's someone speaking the future or speaking even with these signs of ecstatic speech and tongues, as is seen in, in the New Testament. The word prophecies refers to any utterance of the truth of God's Word. Do not despise prophecies. <clears throat> I think it's helpful to understand the, the setting that this letter was written in. We, we talked about it a little bit last week. The Thessalonians were people that had been promised that the Lord's return would be soon. And they, as, as their members began to die, they would worry about what was happening. God's, God's plan was not coming to pass. And you can imagine that they would have been tempted to despise prophecy, to look down on it, to take it lightly, to think little of it. They had been burned by false prophets. That's something Paul was aiming to address in his letters to them. His exhortation was, was to them was to, in the way that we know the saying, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Because one prophet lied to you, gave you false information, false hope. Don't reject God's word because of that one prophet, because of that one prophecy. Don't think little of God's word because someone in the past has misrepresented it to us. The Word of God is still powerful. The Word of God still works in our, in our lives. The Word of God is still true. So instead of thinking little of God's Word and thinking little of the proclamation of God's Word and the study of God's Word, we must love God's Word. We must love the proclamation of it. We must be eager to receive the prophecy of God's Word. Do not despise prophecies, but love prophecies. Love the Word of God and its proclamation. But we have a, a qualifying statement. The third characteristic under discernment and obedience is to test everything. This command qualifies this previous exhortation not to despise prophecies. Instead of indiscriminately accepting everything that we might hear, preach, or read, we are to perform a test. We are to test that which we read and hear. We are to test the prophecy that is given, the proclamation of God's Word that is given. The word test describes what happens when a person evaluates the genuineness of a metal. 
A test determines if that metal is pure, if it's worth what it claims to be worth, if it actually is what it appears to be. In the case of a metal, there's a standard by which that piece is measured and weighed. And if it doesn't meet that standard, it's rejected. It's no good. In the case of spiritual instruction, our standard is the revealed Word of God. If what we read and hear does not measure up with what God has revealed in His Word, then that can be discarded. That thing that we have heard or read, we can leave that to the side. It fails to match up with what we know to be true. It fails to pass the test. So we are warned against indiscriminately accepting everything that we hear in the name of spirituality, in the name of Christianity. We as Christians are commanded to exercise discernment. We don't just believe everything we hear. We are to be discerning. We are to avoid gullibility. This work of discernment and testing is not limited only to the preachers and teachers of God's Word, those who would stand up here and proclaim God's Word, or those who would write a book teaching God's Word. This task of discernment is left to all of us. All of us as Christians have this responsibility. I think it's dangerous when, when a, a preacher or a church would set up one or, or multiple people to be the standard by which all truth is determined. And the, and the people in the church can sit and, you know, if, if the, the pastor or the teacher or the elders say something is true, then it must be true and I'll believe it. We are all called to be discerning. While it's certainly acceptable to receive the words of a preacher with respect. We talked about this last week. We are to receive what we're taught with, with love and admiration and affection. I hope that you receive today the preaching of the Word. I desire that. We desire that. But I would be really discouraged if you just took everything I say and believed it and never checked anything for yourself, never thought for yourself. I'm not smart enough for you to depend on me in that way. I hope, and God wants us all, to be about the task of discerning. What is true? What is, what is God's Word really saying? Don't just take my word for it. Don't just take some other preacher's word for it. You study for yourselves. You exercise discernment. We are all called to exercise discernment. So what happens when we test everything? Well, that which is good we hold fast to. Hold fast to what is good. Again, the imagery here is of a coin that, that passes the test. It's good. It is what it claims to be. It's, it's worth what it claims to be worth. Hold on to it. Use it. When we receive what proves to be genuine truth from God's Word, obey it. Use it for the benefit of the church. This brings us to the second word that I used in this, this section. First, there's discernment. Second, there's obedience. When we determine whether X thing is the truth, the Word of God, when it passes the test, we are left with no other conclusion, no other response to, no other response but to obey it, to follow after it, to live it. <clears throat> to hold fast to what is good is to live in obedience to what is determined to be sound teaching. Not good enough. Not good enough for us just to evaluate whether something is true or false, good or not, and then ignore it. When something is the word of God, when something is true, when God commands us to do something, we have the obligation to obey it and to follow after it. 
Hold fast to what is good. But abstain from every form of evil. This verse has unfortunately been misinterpreted and misunderstood, I believe, by by many Christians. The translation of this verse many of us are probably most familiar with is the King James Version, which translates this verse, abstain from all appearance of evil. And while not an incorrect translation, I believe it, it has led us to, or, or has led, led some to take this verse and apply it and say that we should avoid doing things that might appear to be wrong. We should avoid things that appear to be evil. We should avoid things that if, if someone saw us doing it, they might think we're sinning. I think that's a stretch of of what this verse is referring to. There are verses in Scripture that teach us to avoid doing things that would cause others to stumble. But in those verses, we're called to avoid the thing, not the appearance of the thing. I don't believe anywhere in Scripture we're told to avoid appearing to sin in order to prevent others from stumbling. So I don't think this verse means that we should avoid looking like we're sinning. I think we could probably call other Scripture in on this if we have questions about whether or not we should be doing something. I think there's other Scriptures that deal with those questions. I don't think this is one of them. I think what we're, what we're instructed here is plainly what we read Abstain from every form of evil. If it's wrong, abstain from it. If it's evil, if it's sin, abstain from it. Don't do it. When we are discerning, when we discern whether something is true or not, whether an activity is biblical or not, whether it is sin or not, We respond with either obeying it if it's good and avoiding it if it's sin, if it's evil, if it's wrong. This goes for preaching, teaching, avoid it if it's wrong. This goes for behaviors. If it's it's good, do it, obey it, follow it. If it's sin, avoid it. We as Christians are called to be discerning and obedient. Moving along, I want us to look at how Paul closes this section of exhortations. Because it's tempting for us to come to the end of this and think, I'm never going to be able to do this. I'm not able to do this. I'm not able to rejoice right now. I'm not able to pray constantly. I'm not able to be discerning and obedient to the level that Scripture intends for us to be. What is the answer to that? The answer is found in this benediction that Paul includes here near the end of this letter. Beginning in verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. There is is great hope found in these verses for us. I said at the beginning that this was God's will for us. These behaviors, these attitudes, these actions that are commanded of us in these verses are are the will of God for us. But while God commands us to do these, He does not leave us alone to do them in in and of our own strength and ability. God is wise enough to understand that we are not able to do this. And so He has committed Himself to do the work of sanctification in us. As Paul writes here, the God of peace will himself sanctify you completely. God's purpose 
is to bring us to a place where we can fulfill these. And he does so so that he receives all of the glory for our having accomplished them. Again, that's why I think all these are so interrelated that when we do accomplish these and God is receiving all of the glory for them, the Spirit is not being quenched. He is receiving the glory. We are not limiting His ability practically in our lives. We are living in dependence upon Him. God has given us His Spirit to accomplish these things in us. The Spirit lives inside of every one of us that is a believer, empowering us to obey God's Word. And in these verses, we have the hope that God will do that for us. I'm so thankful that God has not limited His Spirit from working in our hearts. He has given Him to us. He has sent Him to dwell within us, to enable us to obey Him, to follow after Him. So we can be confident. We can obey Him not out of a duty that when we fail, we are discouraged. We can obey Him in confident hope that He is going to do that work for us. Therefore, we should be praying constantly. We should be depending upon the Lord practically, on our knees, on our faces before Him, in utter dependence for Him to work so that we can, we can be healthy spiritually speaking, so that we can live lives that proclaim the glory of God. God is committed to that. He's committing to, committed to bringing us to that point in our lives. And so may we live in utter dependence upon Him, seeking His face, seeking His strength to accomplish the fulfillment of these exhortations. Lord, we thank You for Your Spirit. We thank You for sending Him to dwell within us. You have given us new life in salvation. And we are thankful for the promise that You will accomplish for us and in us our sanctification. That we will be people that bring glory to You not because we are able to do any of this on our own, but because you are ultimately the one that has to do it for us and in us. And may you continue to help us to live in dependence upon you when we are often tempted to ignore you and live without you in mind to go about our lives and, and only think of you when, when things might get really bad or when a situation gets too difficult, and then we come to you. I pray that our lives would continue or would, would be one of continual worship of you, one of dependence upon you, and that we would be able to exercise discernment and obedience as we follow after your will, being confident that you will enable us to do so for your glory. And we pray this in Christ's name because of his work that he has done in and for us. Amen.